Hello, Jordana. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm so excited about this podcast. You and I have been playing a bit of tag and you're super busy. And so thanks so much for taking the time. You have such an incredible story. You have a story, in my humble opinion, about resilience, hope, love, fearlessness, and so many other amazing things. I'm a huge fan. So thank you so much again for coming out. For those of you know our audience who do not know who you are, and there's only a few, I'm sure, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Uh, so I am a criminal defense lawyer. I own my own boutique firm based out of downtown Toronto. We take cases throughout the province uh, with a particular focus on high-risk criminal litigation. So basically defending people charged with homicide-related offenses, drug trafficking, firearms offenses, things of of that caliber, um, and have been doing so for the last almost 14 years now. That's awesome. Awesome rockstar. I'm sure you've got definitely the stories. How did you get to where you are? Because I know your sort of backstory, if you want to share, you know, kind of when you were a a lot younger, uh, you know, growing up, how you grew up and how you got to where you are now. Um, Sure. So, I mean, the Coles Notes version is uh, that I started to find myself sort of getting in trouble, misbehaving in school. It's funny. I was always a really good student. I'd love learning. I loved to read. Um, I don't know if I would now be attending school, if I would be diagnosed with ADHD or some other sort of uh, attention problem. Yeah. In some form or fashion, but like, I just didn't, I didn't want to do things the way my teachers necessarily wanted me to do them, but I always got to the end that they wanted me to get to. And so I always found it a struggle. And so struggled in school, um, but always, you know, played sports. I sort of had this, uh, I was always a, a person of extremes. And uh, that sort of came to a head when I was around 12 years old, started acting out, started misbehaving, started, you know, questioning authority uh, in ways that 12 year olds aren't supposed to. And so got in trouble for questioning the whys, you know, there'd be certain rules and I'd be like, well, why do we have to do it that way? And it was seen as sort of this challenge uh, that came naturally to me, but certainly landed me in quite a bit of trouble. Um, that escalated really quickly. I also struggled a lot emotionally and so at a very young age, um, started abusing substances, alcohol and Can pills. Can I you for one quick second? Just to of go course. back you know, questioning the why. I got to be honest with you. I kind of smirk because it's my exact story. When, you know, the girls got shipped off to home ec and, you know, sewing and cooking and all my friends got to twist a wrench in auto. I was like, but why not? Why can't I go do that? You know, it was sort of a matter of, uh, to me, owning a car and knowing how it worked was a form of independence. So sort of reflecting backwards, was it you just sort of wanting to be, you know, outside of the box, which a lot of successful people are. And it's like you said, you're questioning authority, but the why I think like, I don't know, I I find that really interesting that you were already questioning the why at a young age. I love that. Yep. Very young age. And it was just like, why should I do it that way? If I can do it this way and get to the same place, maybe even quicker. 
Um, and yeah. so that, that for me was always a bit of a challenge. And so I was always outspoken, always. Uh, I love that. But that's, that's, I think, who you are and why you are where you are now. So fast forward, and I apologize for interrupting, but no, I just no, I really wanted to touch on that because yeah, I think it's interesting that at a young age, you know, and especially when we were growing up, it's changing now, thank goodness, but people really try to, you know, put you in this, you know, box and say, this is how you have to learn. This is what you have to do. And like you said, some, everybody has something. I mean, I definitely learn differently, whatever the case may be, but you were already sort of pushing boundaries saying, you know, it doesn't work for me that way. So you were trying to figure out a different way for it to work and find yourself at a young age. So anyways, kudos to you. I think that's awesome. So fast forward to 12 or 13. Yeah. I mean, I think I started questioning the wise probably earlier than that, but I was around 12 or 13 when I started getting in trouble for it. Um, and at the same token, really struggled a lot, you know, emotionally. And I think that sort of the, the catalyst for that ended up, um, that I started abusing pills and alcohol at a very, very young age. Um, by 14, I, uh, I found myself in a group home. My mom really did not know how to control my behavior and so reached out for help at the time, uh, what she was recommended by some of these healthcare professionals um, was for me to go into a group home facility. So not for, you know, lack of wanting to have me at home, but more for this frustration of trying to have me sort of follow uh, the rules and, and norms, I guess, of society at the time. And so at 13 years old, um, I was sent into a group home facility called Utail first for a month, and they decided I needed to be there for 18 months. So I spent uh, a significant amount of time during my formative years in a facility that instead of uh, providing me with the support that I really needed, created such a structure of rules and regulations, which was exactly what I was questioning from the start, that by the time I came home, I uh, had just sort of figured out ways to manipulate the systems around me to get what I want, which is uh, never a good thing for a 15-year-old kid. Um, it certainly did not help with the drug abuse that had started before I entered, and so it really exploded when I came out. Uh, by the time I was 16 years old, I found myself very, very heavily addicted to some serious drugs. Uh, by 17 years old, I left school and was on the streets uh, for the next three years. And so really struggled a lot as a teenager, saw a world that I think most people don't. Uh, luckily, I had the love and support of my mom who stayed with me throughout that time, even as I struggled really deeply uh, and caused a lot of pain to the people around me. Um, and then at 19 years old, she helped me transition into uh, a drug rehab center for six months. I came home at 20, basically with no plan. I knew that I needed to do something with my life. I knew that I should go to school because I had done well at school, but I didn't know what I could actually do with it. I had dreamed of being a lawyer when I was a little kid. So like seven, eight years old, I was like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a lawyer. Um, but I assumed that because of the life that I had just lived throughout my teenagers, that that door had closed. And so it really mm. wasn't a goal when I came back home, but I was taking things in baby steps. So at that point, I didn't have high school completed yet. I returned to high school at 20, graduated at 21, applied to university because, well, what else was I going to do? Uh, I sort of saw it as I sort of should continue in school because I'm, I'm good at it. And it's what I knew. And so I spent four years studying philosophy. And at the end of my degree, I wasn't 
didn't know what I was going to do. You can't do anything with an undergrad in philosophy. So I applied to do my master's in philosophy and I thought, you know what, why don't I just throw applications out to law school? And this way, when I get rejected, at least I know I've tried. Ooh, and I that, that. That's yeah. And that's become a theme of my entire life and career. I have taken on what I've, I've seen as probably losing cases. Mm -hmm. I, this case will probably not succeed, but I don't have an ego that can't win. And I think that's a really important factor for me. And it's been one of the contribute key contributing factors, I would say to my success is that I'm okay losing as long as I've tried and lost. And so that's how my career started from my applications to law school. I was like, you know what, I'm going to throw these out, do what I can. And at least I know that I always made that effort and got rejected. And of course, instead of getting rejected uh, of all schools, Osgood Hall accepted my, uh, my application, as did um, the number one school I wanted to go for my master's, which was the University of Guelph, who offered me a full scholarship. And so then I was stuck sort of debating, what do I really want to do? And, right? and just go with my dream. Yeah. But that is awesome. And I do want to sort of go back to what you said, you know, Wayne Gretzky's there, there's so many greats that say, you know, a hundred percent of the opportunities missed is, you know, zero of zero is zero. And at least you tried and at least you put it out there knowing or thinking that you weren't going to succeed yet you did. And in leaps and bounds. Right. So I feel that especially for in today's, you know, kind of society, and I hate using the C word and it's not the C word you're thinking of, but you know, the <laughs> pandemic really kind of messed with our youth and, you know, not that they don't already have enough to deal with already, but, you know, kind of in their formative years, so to speak. And I find that a lot of, you know, my clients and, and whatever are saying the same thing, but you're saying to, to, you know, our young leaders and to really anybody just try because failure isn't failure. Failure, at least you can say they're lessons. There's one thing um, I know through, I believe it was through your Who Judges the Judge, you say, um, the life we live is the lessons we teach. Yes. Right? Powerful, super powerful. I love your messaging. So, okay, fast forward to you get accepted into law school and your mom's probably beside herself happy. How are you feeling at that time? Oh, I honestly, when I got accepted into law school, I was obviously like completely surprised, um, elated beyond anything. But I was also uh, in the throes of a relapse. I had actually uh, relapsed in my last year of undergrad after submitting about four months after submitting all of these applications to, to grad school. And so now I was conflicted. Cause I didn't think that my life was structured in a way that would allow me to succeed in law school, but here I've just gotten in, but I didn't think I was going to get in. So I called Osgood and asked if I could defer for a year so I could get myself together again. And they said, no, you have to reapply. And I was like, there's no way I get in twice. <laughs> like I wasn't supposed to get in the first time. There's no way I get in the second time. Um, and so I, I accepted and just said, I'll, you know, I'll figure it out. Uh, and I did a few months later, I just, I quit again, knowing that I could do it once I could do it twice. Uh, mm. so again, quit using drugs and my first semester in law school was about quitting everything except law school. And so oh. I, 
I literally had to change everything about my life at the time. I was very much entrenched in Toronto's, you know, party scene. I was doing drugs again. Everyone around me was doing drugs. And so I, um, I walked away from everybody. I walked away from my whole lifestyle. I walked away from friends, you know, some of whom understand and I've reconnected with now that they're in a different position in life. Others have never. Um, and that's okay. I just, I knew that I needed to make a choice and there's, you know, there's times in life where you hit a crossroads and I find a lot of people today aren't prepared to walk away from what holds them back. And then they question why years later they're in the same place. And it's like, you didn't, you had that opportunity and you didn't right. make those difficult steps. And but so my first message of law school was about that. Yeah. And, but with addiction and I have a lot of uh, very, a lot of experience personally and professionally for you to be able to do that, you talk, that's why I started it off. And I know your story, obviously, um, fearlessness, resilience, determination, courage, uh, bravery. There's so many adjectives that can describe that. And a lot of people in it, you know, again, it goes back to education. People think that addiction is a choice. They don't realize it's just like whether you have diabetes or whether you have a heart condition or whatever the case may mm -hmm. be, it's not. I'm and not sure I agree with that. What's that? I'm not sure I fully agree with that. Okay, so we'll debate that in a moment. But I feel that, you know, at the end of the day, you made, it, it was a difficult choice though. Like you obviously struggled with it your whole life. So do you, okay, so let's go there then. Do you feel like addiction is a choice? So I think that those of us who struggle with addiction are hardwired to be more susceptible to addictive behaviors for sure. I have friends that can use casually for days on end and then walk away and not touch drugs for months on end. I was never capable of doing that. So I do think that there's a particular hardwiring behind the addictive personality, but to suggest that it's on par with something like diabetes or cancer, you can't wake up in the morning and decide you are no longer going to have cancer. You can't wake up in the morning and say, I am not going to have diabetes today. But you can wake up. Yeah, I don't think I mentioned cancer. I said diabetes and heart condition. And the reason I say that is a lot of those kinds of illnesses are about what we eat and the lifestyle we live, I think. For sure. Those are choices. But once you have diabetes, you can't stop having diabetes or the symptoms from diabetes. Whereas you can wake up in the morning and say, today, I'm no longer going to use, you know, cocaine or whatever your drug of choice is and actually stop using. Now, I'm not saying it's not more difficult for those that are hardwired to be addicts. Like I've certainly seen that it was far more of a struggle for me than my friends who are casual users. Um, right. And as a result, for me, it's all or nothing. Right. So and that's, this I year I'll be celebrating 20 years drug free and I would never touch again. I can't dabble. I don't, I'm not that person that's capable. Right. And that's, I think that's sort of my point because having, you know, some loved ones that are addicts, exactly how you said it, I think you're just framing it different. I think our per perception is the same is that there are people that are hardwired, even for alcohol. Some people, you know, I can have one or two drinks. Other people have to have 22 drinks and blackout or else it's just not for them. So I think I, we're talking about maybe different levels of addiction. My point still is it took a lot for you to be able to get, I mean, you went through rehab, you were, like you said, you were sober for many years. 
or for a while, and then you went into law school or just before that you relapsed. And just for you to say, I quit everything but school, I think it just speaks in volume. And I think what I'm trying to get from you as well is how did you do that? That is, that seems like really difficult for a lot of people. <laughs> Excuse me. I think it's a matter of necessity. Like I knew, I knew that I could not manage both law school and a cocaine addiction. I just knew that. And when I got accepted into law school, I had to make a choice. You know, mm -hmm. people today don't like the thought of having to make a choice. But the reality is I couldn't be both a lawyer and an astronaut at the same time. <laughs> there are things in life you can't do together. There are choices that have to be made and right. there are sacrifices you have to make. And I think a lot of people today don't want to make the hard sacrifices and don't want to do that work or they want an easier way or a softer way to do it. And there wasn't a softer or easier way for me. It was, do I want to be a lawyer at the end of the day? Do I want to pursue this opportunity that is once in a lifetime for someone like me who had spent, you know, by that point, over 10 years, I think 12 years, by the time I got to, I got to law school, 25 years old. And so I had already been down the path of, you know, addiction, mental health issues, institutionalization, the streets, arrested twice, jail. Like that was my life for 12 years before I started law school. So to have the opportunity to be a lawyer and actually make something of myself was once in a lifetime. And so I was prepared to do whatever it was going to take for me to realize that opportunity to the fullest. You know, it's something that I couldn't do just a little bit. And so it was out of necessity that I said, okay, this, like I woke up one morning, I'm like, I'm done, I'm done. I cannot continue in this lifestyle knowing what's potentially ahead for me. And was so- Was that moment? Was that the moment like waking up, realizing whether you were hungover or you'd been up for days and days, was there a moment that you just decided or was it sort of, you know, just you thinking of, like you said, I can't do both. Was there any kind of moment that you had? Yeah. So I had known from the time I got into law school, which I think I, I got the acceptance around April and I had started using cocaine again in February. So, you know, a month and a half into this relapse, I get accepted into Osgood a week or two later when they told me I could not defer, uh, I accepted the offer knowing that I needed to do something to manage this cocaine addiction before law school started in September. So I had a little bit of time, um, but end of June, I was with friends. I was on a two or three day bender and I had just been using, not just, but I had been using powder cocaine since my relapse had started in February. But as a teenager, um, I had, I had been a crack addict. So I started smoking crack when I was 16, quit when I was 19 and then relapsed again on powder at 24, I turned 25 that June. And so, uh, here I am on this three day binge, not really getting high anymore because that's what happens. My tolerance goes up so quickly and it doesn't seem to matter how much I consume at any time. It, it just doesn't work anymore. And that happened to me at light speed during this relapse. And so my whole group of friends were uh, up in the living room of, of another friend's house. And we were like club kids. So everybody was, you know, well-dressed when the binge started, not so much when we finished, you know, coming into two or three days later. 
But I went into the kitchen and I opened up the fridge and I reached in for a bottle or a, a box of baking powder because that's how you cook cocaine into crack. And here I was 24 years old with an acceptance into, uh, at the time, arguably one of Canada's best law schools, mm -hmm. thinking in my head, am I going to remember how to cook this when it's been four years? And I thought, wow. And I just, I picked up the box and I had this like vision of myself, you know, 16 years old, smoking crack. And here I am at this point, I had just turned 25. Um, and I had these like this flash in my mind that if this is the path I go down now, I will never, ever be a lawyer. If I open this door again, I will not come back from it. And I remembered the struggle to get clean the first time and how much more I had accomplished. Right. So, you know, at, at 19, when I quit 20, when I came home from rehab, uh, in that uh, five year period, I had now completed high school, I had earned uh, a scholarship to York University, I had completed an honors degree in philosophy, I was working, you know, part time jobs, was making decent money, uh, was doing youth outreach for various social work programs, like I had just I had accomplishments that I would never have been able to muster had I not sobered up. And I looked down at the box in my hand and I just I put it back and I went upstairs and I yelled to everyone in the room, I'm done. And everybody laughed at me. They thought it was a joke and it, it really wasn't. I, uh, I went down to a guest room of the house, forced myself to fall asleep somehow, some way and woke up in the morning and said, I really am done, like done, done. And uh, so this coming June will be 20 years. Wow, that is such a story and such a story of inspiration. And so you continued down, obviously, an amazing path. You went to school obviously graduated, you've got this rock star career, you've got an amazing boutique uh, agency or firm right now. And do you ever, I love the fact that number one, you're so authentic about your story, but when you look back and you talk about it, I think that it's empowerment, not just maybe for yourself, but it's also people that are maybe going through something similar and they feel like there's no way out. I feel like your story resonates and will resonate with so many different people. How do you feel that people sort of receive what your story is? I mean, that's why I started opening up about it originally, because I got to law school and there was no one that I would allow to even know what I had been struggling with. Um, I was scared of anyone finding out about my past or what I had been through at all in life. And, you know, when I searched through media, I couldn't find anyone who had come out of this. And there are plenty of other examples and people are starting to talk about it and have, but back then uh, there was no one that I could look up to. And so I was like, I don't know if I could do this. Has anyone else done this? You know, I sort of looked around. I was like, has anyone else come from, you know, serious addiction and made it into a really incredible, you know, life in the professional context, whether it's law or otherwise. And I couldn't find examples. And so I promised myself that if I could figure out how to be successful with this law thing, then I would be open about who I was just so that other people had that example if they were struggling. And so, you know, it's, it's been frightening. I think every step of the way I'm jeopardizing my career. And, you know, what if I'm revealing that one point of information that my clients aren't ever going to be okay with, or the judges I appear in front of are going to look badly on me. Um, and so there's always been that sort of 
um, yeah, fear, but more so than that, there's that need to be honest and as, as you called it, authentic about who I am and where I'm coming from. So that if there are other people, you know, struggling and questioning whether or not it's possible, they can see this and, and realize that it is. Yeah. And, and that is profound because I mean, look, we're all human at the end of the day, you know, we look at, you know, what I, one of the companies I have is private investigation. And I can tell you those who live in glass houses, right? Everybody's got something. And I feel that those who sort of judge, you know, does it matter? I don't know. Again, professionally and like your clients and whatnot, I feel like you're much more relatable. I think if I was looking for somebody to work with, I would want that authenticity. And the fact that let alone that you've been sober for going on 20 years, you. Uh, you know, it's incredible. So I think everybody's got something sort of in the closet or something maybe they don't want to talk about. And that's OK. But, you know, even this whole podcast is about being authentic. And that's why, you know, hats off to you for talking about it. And I feel that the inspiration and the lives that you touch. I know you hear from some people, but even the people maybe you don't hear from right now, I know there's a ton of people that watch you, listen to you, and are very, very much inspired by you. So thank you so much for that. So I've got two more quick questions, and then unfortunately, I'm sure we're going to have many more talks. Uh, I'll have to let you go, and you're probably running off to court or the office or somewhere. What does it mean to you to be unbreakable? When you hear that word, I am unbreakable or unbreakable. What does that mean? I think it's a resilience that you don't even question. You know, I think unbreakable, it doesn't mean that, you know, I think of an object that you can drop or on the floor or throw against a wall. It's going to affect that object, but the object continues to exist in the state that it was in. And so when you say you're unbreakable, I think, well, I still take a fall. I can still get bruised. I can still get a little broken. It's about picking myself up and still going on despite that. That's where the resilience comes from. I think a lot of people um, aren't prepared to take the risks that might cause them the bruises and the breaks. But that's the only way we grow. And that's the only way we test if we're unbreakable. You don't know you're unbreakable unless you have the test to prove it. And so I think of it as the need as humans for us to put ourselves to that test. For sure. And like you said, that's where resilience and confidence is born. So last question before we uh, say goodbye. If you had a tip for anybody that's watching out there that's had a similar story or is in the middle of something like what you've gone through, any sort of last words of wisdom, aside from the amazing things that you've already you know, shared with us, do you have anything else that you feel that could help them at this moment? I think just to have faith in yourself and don't let yourself be detracted from what your end goal is. Um, I think, you know, don't think small or think that you're limited by whatever your struggle has been. It might be harder for you. You may have more hurdles to overcome to get to that goal. Um, But I think the hardest lesson for me was recognizing that I don't have to limit my future by what my past is set up. I love that. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Big hug. Thanks for having me. Very soon. Absolutely. All right.
Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Bye.